Excellent. Well, I was um, briefly uh, watching TV last night, and so I thought this uh, question might be a, a good opener. Uh, does anyone know who Eric Liddell is? Put your hands up straight because it'll help me. Oh, okay, a whole bunch of people. That's good. Just a sneaky hand up if you've got no idea who he is. Okay, that's good to know too. Okay, thank you for your honesty. Uh, so uh, Eric Liddell uh, is one of those hero kind of people for me. And uh, he's made very famous in a particular movie, which is Chariots of Fire. So I was watching it last night, and I'm just thinking, what is there not to love about, about this man? Just truly uh, an extraordinary man. A Scotsman, is that right, Al? Yep. <laughs> uh, a Scotsman, uh, a runner, but far beyond any of those, a passionate servant of Jesus. A man who poured his heart out. He was actually born on the mission field in China came home to Scotland uh, when he was doing his schooling, uh, ended up being able to uh, play rugby for Scotland and then run in the 1924 Olympics for England. Uh, The reason that he's famous, funnily enough, is probably not even just because he's a missionary uh, or even that he was a runner. It's actually his not running that made him famous. Uh, The really famous thing about Eric Liddell is that He had trained as an Olympic athlete and he had trained for the 100 yards. And the Olympic timetable put the 100 yards heats on what day? Does anyone know? On a Sunday. And Eric, being a very convinced Christian, decided that it would be ungodly for him to run on a Sunday. Now, we can debate the pros and cons of all of that, but that was his firm personal conviction that it would be wrong for him to run on a Sunday. So essentially, he was ruled out of the event that he was selected for the Olympic team for by virtue of a scheduling issue and his conscience and devotion to Jesus. If you haven't watched the movie, it's awesome to see people try and twist him to to make him run on the Sunday, and he stands firm. In the end, they say to him, what if we let you run in a different event? In the 400-yard dash, you can take another person's place. He said, I'll do that. He ran on a different day and incredibly set a world record and won a gold medal in the event that wasn't his specialty. Anyway, if you haven't seen seen, uh, Chariots of Fire recently, go check it out. It's absolutely fabulous. The, the, The way I wanted to get into this was exploring the concept of Sabbath, of a day of rest for Eric... It was an absolute pinnacle point. You cannot compromise this point. And I want you to see that it's an ongoing struggle that we then take into the text here, and we can see there were actually debates around Jesus' day on what to do with the Sabbath. What should be done on the Sabbath? And that Sabbath for the Jews was what day? Does anyone know? Saturday. Uh, Christians go for Sunday because that's the day that Jesus uh, Jesus rose. So we we kind of go for a, a different day. But they, were, they, were, they had the Sabbath as the Saturday, and it was a huge deal. I want to take you in to, uh, to Mark uh, and just see before chapter 3 where we are that this issue of the Sabbath had come up. In uh, chapter 2, verse 24, we see this. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus' disciples were walking through the fields, and as they walked, they picked some grain, they ground it up, 
and they ate it as they walked through the, through, the, uh, through the fields. And the Pharisees said, you can't do work on the Sabbath. You're doing work by grinding the grain. Absolutely out of line. Jesus puts them in their place. He says this uh, in verses 27 to 28 of chapter 2. He says, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What he's saying here is God put in place a day of rest in order to bless you, not to tie you in knots, not to be a poking stick of religious zealots. That's not what it's for. It was designed for you not to abuse others. And so he says, the Son of Man, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. I'm able to act freely, understanding what, it was, what its purpose was. So this is the setup. We then find ourselves at the start of chapter 3, uh, in a home, actually in a synagogue. So look with me, uh, we're in Mark chapter 3 and uh, verses 1 to 5. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. We assume that means he was crippled or injured in some way. It's, it's not expounded, but it was clearly um, a, a difficulty for this man. Some of them The them here we assume to be the Pharisees. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So it's extraordinary, isn't it? So so in prospect is healing and restoration. And their goal is we're watching you to see if we can trap you. It's extraordinary. So they gather. uh, Jesus said uh, to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Do you think Jesus is ducking a fight here? I'll save you the speculation. He's not. Uh, Stand up in front of everyone. So he makes it a point of focus. You stand. So he stands. I assume at this point, everyone is looking. Then Jesus asked them. Did Jesus need to know that this is what they were thinking? He knew. He knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he asked the Pharisees, he said, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But before we go on, what, what do you reckon? <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's a Dorothy Dixer question. It's the question you know the answer to when you ask it. Is it lawful to do good or evil? To kill or to save? Oh, can, uh, can I phone a friend? No. It's immediately obvious. It is actually lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If... In another parallel to this, Jesus says, if uh, an ox falls over into a ditch, do you just leave it there until the next day? Well, the answer to that is, of course you don't, do you? Um, you go and get it out. And so he says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, but, but he, asks this, he asks them this question. Look at their response. But they remained silent. They knew they were caught. We've come here to accuse you, Jesus. Is it lawful to do good or evil on the Sabbath? We couldn't possibly, we couldn't possibly speak. Their silence is culpable. They know they're caught. They know that they are caught. So then you have this next bit, right? Have a look. Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Well, why was Jesus so angry? What made Jesus furious about this situation? Have a look at the words. We we don't see Jesus angry very often, do we? In fact, some of us might think, hey, Jesus was angry. Isn't that wrong? 
Didn't you just sin there? No. It's a righteous response to committed sinfulness. And where we see evil in the world, we should rightly rise up against it. We shouldn't sit comfortably with evil. And Jesus looked at their, their reluctance and their desire to kill him, and he was angry, righteously angry. And he was deeply distressed at what? It says here in the text, their stubborn hearts. And so he says to the man, abracadabra. There's no magic spells here, are there? What does Jesus say? Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Now, just as a little aside, I kind of want to think to myself, who did the healing here? Was it the man who stretched out his hand? Or was it Jesus just speaking the command to him? It's incredible, isn't it? He actually couldn't obey the command until he was healed. It's, it's, it's a simultaneous thing, I think. But Jesus has the power. His words create healing and wholeness. Jesus was angry at their stubborn hearts and his words in response spoke life and healing and restoration. Here's why Jesus was angry. Have a look at this little bit in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 5. It says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you can't see God at work here, woe to you. You stubborn-hearted people. And it causes him great grief. So a healing has just taken place. We would expect the Pharisees to obviously repent and go, gee, we were wrong to doubt you, Jesus. Here's what they did in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That's the right response to a healer, isn't it? A miracle-working healer. We should kill him. Just quietly, here's a, here's a speculation, a reflection. So the, the Sabbath can't be used for healing, right? Remember what Jesus' question was? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to evil, to save or to kill? Jesus heals and the Pharisees do what? Plot to kill him. Apparently the Sabbath can be used for plotting murder. Intriguing, isn't it? I want to think... Briefly, we're going to have to go past it, but I want to think with this briefly. Have we got any residual concept of Sabbath left? We all understand that it was being misused here, that it was constrictive. Maybe even that Eric Liddell overstated it. But do we have any rest in our lives? Do we have a day set aside to reflect on our God? It's almost impossible these days, isn't it? I'll leave you to think further about that. The next little bit that happens... Uh, has to do with the lake and their moving. Come with me to verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd followed from, uh, from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came from Judea, that's in the south, Jerusalem, the capital city, Idumea, further south, and the regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, right up north. In other words, all over the countryside, people are coming to Jesus because they've heard what it is that he's been doing. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Can you imagine the scene? It's 
it's really, you know, when you see desperate scenes of uh, starvation, you know, when someone's dropping wheat bags off the back of a truck or something and you see people just rushing forward, it, there's, there's healing present in this man. And so people who are desperately unwell are just fighting their way forward to try and touch him and receive the healing. There is so much passion for wholeness and restoration, but it must have been a madhouse. So Jesus says, guys, you've got to give me some, spa- some space. Remember what Jesus said the other week. He, sang, he said he came to preach, and here he is being overwhelmed by a literal storm of sick people trying to touch him. And then we see in verse 11, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. In this part here, we see again this idea that the, the spiritual realm, the, 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 the demonic, has this identity of Jesus clear. You are the son of God. And Jesus says to them, zip it. You aren't to be the proclaimers of my divinity. That's not your job. Why are they crying out like this? I, I did some interesting reading this week. Why would, they, why would the demons go, you're the son of God, you're the son of God? I find that really odd. Why, why do they do it? It's interesting. Jesus meets a demon-possessed man in chapter 5. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? The man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Apparently, the Jews at this time understood that if you could know the name of the demon, you could command the demon then to leave. Does this make sense? And so what the the spirits are apparently trying to do is to say, I've got your name, Jesus. You're the son of God. Here's the trouble, though. There is power in having a name, but no power over this name. Do you see? So it is powerful. I mean, if you've ever led a class of kids before... It's incredibly powerful to be able to say, I was going to say your name, Darren, but I won't, uh, to, to say uh, Tony here, there is no Tony, uh, to say, Tony, Tony, can you sit down and be quiet? Sam, keep your hands to yourself. That's very powerful. In this instance, it was powerful over the demonic to be able to name what it was. And here's the evil spirit saying, hey, Jesus, you're the son of God. Oh, no power there. Sorry, our bad. Here's the question, though. Do we know the power of Jesus' name? I'm always struck. If I'm in a conversation, you can have a conversation with people who don't know Jesus about God. If you change the subject to Jesus, I reckon you can watch a physical change in how that conversation works. People will stand differently. It'll be awkward quicker. There is still power in the name of Jesus, but no power for the demonic over Jesus. You must know Jesus stands unalterably more powerful than any spiritual force that could be arrayed against him. He is the king, unopposed. Let's keep going. Uh, We're going to go to this next little bit here. Does anyone know where this is? What's it called? The 12 apostles. Someone said it's it's a reduced number. How many is it? About six or seven. Apparently it was the 12 apostles, and apparently they keep on falling down. So uh, there's less now, is what I'm told. At any point, very famous uh, south uh, drive on the, um, on the uh, south of Australia. Has anyone been there? I'm thinking Cheslonians especially, but yes, good, lovely, thank you. 
Um, So 12 apostles, that's a helpful background for this next little bit uh, that we have here about the calling of the apostles. Have a look at me at uh, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up uh, on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Uh, there was some speculation in my reading this week that they were grumpy. I, I wondered whether they had some spiritual power or something. They, they were, literally, these guys are sort of saying they probably had stormy temperaments. So, sons of thunder. Uh, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Are you familiar with the phrase, spoiler alert? This is when people give away the key plot development, you know, and they ruin the movie for you by telling, did you know that it was such and such? You know that? Don't you get that sense here? We're just being introduced to the disciples who are just being chosen, and we're told, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, we'll watch this guy pretty carefully from now, won't we? So, uh, so what, are we, what are we seeing here? What, why does he call 12? Couldn't he have done seven, like the number of apostles that are now standing? Couldn't he have done 12? Wouldn't he have been better to choose a bigger number, 200, and just whittle them down or something? Why 12? In the Old Testament, the people of God are organized into tribes. Does anyone know how many tribes there are? Of course there are. There are 12. And here they are, arranged around the outside of the tabernacle. So the idea was God dwelt in the middle of his people, in the tent at the center of the people of Israel. And as they traveled around, the 12 tribes would be organized when they pitched tent around the outside. God at the center, 12 tribes around the outside. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm creating a new baby precious Israel here. I'm the son of God. I am gathering to me 12 who will be with me. Do you see this? The new Israel is being formed, one that's built around Jesus. It's a beautiful new people of God. I love this quote, so I'm just going to read it to you. I hardly ever do this, but it was just, it was pretty encouraging. So have a listen. It was a strange group of men for our Lord to choose to be his disciples. Four of them were fishermen, one a hated tax collector. That's Levi, remember from the other week? Another, a member of a radical and violent political party. That's Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were revolutionaries. Of the six of them, we know practically nothing. All were laymen. There was not a preacher or an expert in the scriptures in the lot. Yet it was with these men that Jesus established his church and disseminated the good news to the ends of the earth. Is that good? I just think that's fabulous. And it's so upside down. Because we'd say, Jesus, pick the experts. Go with the people who are the professionals. If you're going to start something that will last for all eternity, get it right at the start. Begin with the pros. And here it is saying he didn't start with the pros at all. He started with the ordinary people. He didn't pick a Pharisee. He didn't pick a Sadducee. He picked the enemies, the people who were the outcasts and the people who were just average Joes. I want you to see how average they were. There's a beautiful little bit, a little snippet 
in Acts chapter 4, where the Sanhedrin, the big Jewish ruling, ruling council in Jerusalem, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. They've been preaching Jesus in Jerusalem, and the Jews go, stop it. You can't speak in Jesus' name anymore. And they go, we, got no, we can't do anything else. We, we have to speak about Jesus. So they keep going, and eventually they get arrested. They get taken before this Jewish court. And then I want you to see what they noticed when they had them in front of the court. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. We can see you're no upper-class scholar. We can tell that you've got calloused hands. We can hear your ridiculous Galilean accent. You must be yokels. Yeah. But here you are standing in front of the most authoritative group in Israel under the Romans, and you are speaking boldly, and you refuse to stand down. Why is that? Well, the only thing we've got that will account for these extraordinary facts is that you had been with Jesus. You have been with Jesus. And I want to encourage you today, did you know that Jesus is just as accessible today? One of the beauties of the fact that he has gone to heaven, that he has given us his Holy Spirit, is that we can know and love and serve Jesus today. That although his body is in heaven, his presence is with us. He said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. You can know Jesus today. You can know Jesus today. So here's the question. If these men were were ordinary men transformed into the extraordinary by virtue of being with Jesus, will you seek him? Will you seek him? It's not a course. It's not money you have to pay. It's the desire to seek him. Jesus said, knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will what? Find. Jesus will be found by all true seekers. He will be known. He will be transformatively known by you if you will seek after him. And there's no barrier. There's no limit. And the transformation on offer? Extraordinary. Pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know him, What a great journey to start. What a great journey to start. I want you to see what he gave to his apostles, what what he equipped them with. He called them to him. He was making this new Israel. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the 12 that they might, notice this, that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. Now, we'd put a full stop there, wouldn't we? And that he might send them out to preach. Of course, that's their job. What does Jesus do? To preach and have authority to drive out demons. And we go, that's weird. Maybe we've never seen one. Maybe we don't even believe that they exist. But Jesus gave the responsibility to proclaim the kingdom and to bring the kingdom. Proclaim it and bring it. Real freedom. Not because they're extraordinary people, note, but because they had delegated authority from the one who had unopposed authority. 
You see that? Preach the kingdom, bring the kingdom. How do you bring the kingdom? With delegated authority from the one who is unopposed. So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's building a new authority, sorry, a new, a new Israel around him. And they have delegated authority. I, I guess the question, and, and Jeff and I discussed this a little through the week, do we believe that that authority has been handed on? And what sort of impact would we expect if we were asked not just to proclaim it, but to bring it as well? How did people react to this authority that they saw in Jesus? How did they react to that? Well, there are two reactions recorded for us. And uh, one of them is from the family and one is from the religious leaders. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, we all love our families. Well, maybe we don't all love our families. Some of us have very difficult families. Um, Jesus' family makes a very clear statement on what they think he's like. Have a look with me uh, at chapter 3 and verses 20 uh, to 21. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That sounds pretty hectic, doesn't it? Yep. We can't get food into our mouths because it's a storm of sick people pressing through to hear what Jesus has to say and to receive the healing that's on offer. It's mayhem. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. I want to give them a little bit the benefit of the doubt and say they're probably doing this lovingly. Jesus, if you don't even have time to eat, mate, we've, we've got to pull you out. Evac, you know, we've got to pull you out in order to give you space to get back to yourself again. This, this whole teaching thing that you're on, it's getting a bit crazy. But notice what their desire is. It's not just to help him. There is something wrong here. What's the words? Take charge of him. What do they want to do? They want to put Jesus back in a box. Jesus, you've been a great big brother. You've been the perfect son. Right now, our family's pretty messed up because you're pursuing this whole preaching gig. And it's really unsettling. We need you to come back to be quiet, to be the son of the carpenter. We need to take charge of you and put you back in your box. It's not right, is it? So the family say he's crazy. That must be very disappointing for Jesus, mustn't it? The people who know him the most think he's crazy. There's a second group that we would hope were dealing with Jesus well. The godly people in Israel, the religious leaders, surely they must respond. Well, what, what's their response? Jesus is crazy is the family's statement. The religious leaders say he has a crazy driver. Let me explain that. Have a look at verse uh, 22 of chapter 3 here. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Jesus, it's a demonic spirit inside you. In fact, the prince of demonic spirits that is making you act this way. It's not you. Inside you is a crazy driver, an evil spirit. Crazy? Crazy driver. At any rate, it's not very affirming, is it? 
Jesus goes on to speak to this particular concern. He says this in verses, uh, not 23, 3 to 3, it's uh, to the end of verse 29. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Well, Jesus has our attention at this point, doesn't he? But let me just quickly make sure that you get the point. Person with a demon in them, is that enhancing their life? Destroying their life. Jesus comes and says, get out. The demon flees. The person who was previously possessed is in their right mind, is whole and restored. They're no longer raving. They're no longer cutting themselves. They're no longer calling out. They're whole and restored. And what Jesus is saying is, if Satan is putting another demon in, when he casts out a demon, he's not winning, is he? He's just shuffling demons. Do you get this? If the demons are truly being cast out, guess what? Satan's losing. And in fact, the strong man who put the demon in there has been bound. He no longer has power. I have bound the strong man. I am setting people free. I'm setting them free. There is wholeness where there was illness, sickness, distress. I'm bringing wholeness. He said this thing about the unforgivable sin because they were saying he has an impure spirit. He has an impure spirit. You see, seeing God at work can't be mistaken for the devil. If you, if you look at God's work, this freeing, whole-making, healing work, and you look at that and say, that's demonic, you're lost. You will never turn to God if you see his work and call it evil. Do you understand? You'll never call to God if you look at his work of freedom and healing and restoration and call it evil. You'll never turn to God. And if you say the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the devil, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You've said the Holy Spirit's work isn't holy, but evil. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven because you'll never turn to God and ask forgiveness. You've called his work evil. So why would you turn to him and say, please forgive me? It's an unforgivable sin because you'll never cry out. Can we tell the difference between Satan's work and the work of Jesus? Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. You will be able to tell what is Jesus' work. It's worth saying this little pastoral word. There is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven, but those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. 
If you think you have, please come and talk to me. I'd love to set you free. Your wondering about it shows me that you don't have an unresolved desire to call God's work evil. I'd love to pray with you and set you free. Well, all of that happens. And then Jesus' family arrive. We're going to finish here. We love family, don't we? With all the asterisks next to it. We think family's so important in Australia. It's almost our highest good. And to have family offside is a grievous distress. Guess what? It was in Jesus' time as well. And that makes the words that are said here even more extraordinary. Have a look with me at verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call to him. See, they couldn't even get in the door. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus' next answer must have cut them to the heart. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This morning I want to leave us with the challenge that Jesus puts before the people here. That there is an offer of family with Jesus. Not just forgiveness from sins, but actual family. He says, obedience to the Father makes you part of his family. Obedience to the Father makes you part of his family. You can be Jesus' brother and sister. I'm not sure you can be his mother, but you know. Uh, You can be part of his family by virtue of your desire to be obedient to his will. So I want to ask us, do we truly want to belong? Do we truly want to seek? Do we want to work with that delegated authority? Do we want to see the name of Jesus lifted high? And if so, the entry is easy. Obedience, repentance, and seeking. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son has shown us what it looks like to be part of your family We thank you that being with you transformed lives, made people recognisably different. This morning, I pray for those of us here who are yet to know Jesus wholeheartedly, that we might choose to do so this morning. I want to pray for those of us who've known him for years, decades even, that we might seek to know him more. I pray, Father, that our passion to be obedient may make us, show us, reveal us, to be sons and daughters of yours. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.